Welcome back to another episode of Mentors on the Mic podcast. Season four has been going on strong. If you haven't been here before, Mentors on the Mic is a podcast for those focused on getting into or getting more acquainted with the entertainment industry. So we focus on how mentors in this industry started, how they moved up to where they are today. And my guests include showrunners, series regulars, network executives, directors, agents, casting directors, and more. Our mission is to provide listeners with the tools, wisdom, and encouragement to grow in this industry. Who am I? My name is Michelle Simone Miller, and I am your host of this podcast. And you, you know, if at some point, you're listening to this episode and you're going, oh, this is so good. Uh, please, please rate and review on whatever podcast platform you are on. I love seeing them. I read every single one. They make my heart sing. And uh, just give me joy. So thanks. And if you want to write to me and say, hey, listen, Michelle, there's something I want from this. This is a uh, There's a mentor I recommend or there's a type of bonus episode that I want you to do. Just DM me. I'm on at mentors on the mic or at Michelle Simone Miller. I want to hear from you and I appreciate you. So thank you. And let's get into it. Our mentor this week is the Emmy winning producer and writer, Eric Tuckman. Eric has won, had won the 2017 Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Drama Series for his work on The Handmaid's Tale. He received multiple nominations. Um, he also won a Producers Guild of America Award for Best Episodic Drama in 2018. And he won two Writers Guild of America Awards as part of the writing team for The Handmaid's Tale. Um, and he also, in 1998, was nominated for an Annie Award for his Outstanding Achievement for Writing and a feature production for his screenplay of Anastasia. That is the Anastasia, the one with Meg Ryan, John Cusack, Christopher Lloyd, Kelsey Grammer, Bernadette Peters. Amazing. He's also the former showrunner for Kyle XY, former writer for the show The Beauty and the Beast, Stitchers. So he's been doing this for quite some time. And it was really, really wonderful sort of getting into the nitty gritty of like how he got that first role, the, the like hustle he had to do in Hollywood to get to where he is. I learned so much from that. And we talked also about the hierarchy in the writer's room. We just get really into it. So I'm really excited about this episode. Without further ado, here's Eric Tuckman. So Eric, welcome to Mentors on the Mic. Thank you for, for coming on. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. What was your first role in the entertainment industry? I went to film school. I went to Columbia after going to college. I went to Brandeis undergrad. And I knew I wanted to be a writer. So at Columbia, that was my focus. I, I graduated with a, a short film that I did direct and write, but also a screenplay. And I knew I had to make the move to Los Angeles from New York. So I, I did that after graduating. And my first uh, role was I, I wrote a script when I got to LA that was optioned. It was a feature film. So, you know, we're talking you know, 1990, 1991. So the environment was a lot different uh, for someone breaking in back then. It was uh, at that time, I didn't know anybody who wanted to work in TV. Everybody wanted to be a feature writer to make movies. That was that was a thing. That was, that was you know, thing. TV was kind of like, we stay away from it a little bit. Yeah, there was a real dividing line. People were kind of, I wasn't, but, you know, feature writers were kind of snobby about TV writing. 
And now, of course, things have changed drastically, but... That's where the good writing is. Yeah, it's like the golden age of TV now. And at the time, though, this was the the period when there were these big feature film uh, spec sales. You could write a script on spec, and there were people making these huge uh, sales, and that was their entry into the industry. So... It, it feels um, it, it felt daunting then, but not like it is today. It feels much more complicated today. But back then, that's what you did. You kind of came out here, and if you wanted to write movies, you wrote a script on spec, and hopefully, uh, you would get that picked up or it would lead to other work. Well, let's so let's break that down for a sec. So you were in you were at Columbia. You had a short film, so you already had something of note of showing like your capabilities. And then you go to L.A. Do you have the spec project in your back pocket? Do you have to go here? Do you go to L.A. and then you figure out, okay, this is the next step. This is what I have to do next. Well, I had, I did have a spec in my back pocket. And I should say before I left for L.A., I did something that for me was, was very scary, which was cold calling agents from New York. And I had a list of agencies that were in Los Angeles and I forced myself to sit down and make these oh my God. very uncomfortable calls. Uh, and a lot of times no one would take the call. But there were a handful of younger agents who were looking for new clients who took the call. And were I, I told them I had just graduated from film school and I was making the move and I had the short film and a, and a script. And some of them were willing to read it or to watch the film. And then there was a whole round of following up with those people calling again. Have you watched my movie? Have you read my script? So I did that for a few months before even making the move. And I was lucky enough to have interest from a few people. And and the one person who seemed most enthusiastic is still my manager today. I love that. So that's a very, very unusual thing out here. You don't see that kind of long-term commitment. So he was an agent who became a manager. But that was helpful. I moved from... More than helpful. What a story of tenacity. Yeah. it's uh, And that's, you know, if I could impart any lesson is that you just have to force yourself to do things that may not be the most comfortable for for you and your personality, but... And stay persistent. I mean, listen, I wasn't going to say anything, but it comes up now, you know, with you. I think I emailed you originally, like, maybe last February. I don't know if you remember this, but I emailed you and you were like... We're, in the, we're about to start. We're like in the thick of it. Like, can you follow up? And I followed up a couple times and it's worth it. You know, like sometimes it comes across as annoying, but sometimes it works out. <laughs> well, it's funny you say that. Sometimes you get an agent. <laughs> I did say, you know, Michelle has e- emailed me, I think, three times. I wore you down, Eric. It's I, not I had that to I, do it. <laughs> I don't have anything personal against you, Michelle, is doing these. It's like, oh, who's going to be interested in hearing me say anything? So you fi- I finally said, you know, I'm I'm gonna do it. I'll do it. So I'm glad oh, you were persistent. God, I appreciate that. I appreciate that really, and I I do. And uh, I'm only I'm only joking because that remind that story reminded me of it. But you got your yeah. manager. So you came to LA with a manager. I mean, that's already a big deal. Yeah, it was an agent. He was an agent. And the funny- I mean, an agent at the time. Yeah. Yeah, and of course he was at a very small agency. He was just starting out, so he had you know very few clients. He made it seem like things were happening for him. 
But that's really what you need as a young writer. You want someone who's young and hungry or older and hungry, but someone who really is going to be passionate about your work and who he or she themselves need to break in. You don't want someone who's going to, you know, see you as one of many, many. You want to be their person. Absolutely. But also you worked for it. But I I will say, you know, it kind of reminds me I'm an actor as well in New York. And it reminds me there's a catch 22 we always talk about in the acting industry. Like you can't get an agent usually without some sort of credit or a couple credits even. But you also can't get those credits without an agent getting you those auditions. And you kind of have to just figure out Mm -hmm. how to kind of you know, uh, carve that space for yourself within that catch 22. But it sounds similar, I guess, in being a writer that like, it's probably it's similar, you just have to find someone who will take that chance on you, which that's you did. right. That's right. And those people are out there. You know, again, if you're a younger representative, you have to find clients, you have to find people that you're um, excited about. And they're looking, they're looking. So there you just have to connect with the right person. And let me ask you, and this is obviously like probably not the greatest question I can ask you because mm-hmm. this is going to be going out to people and people are going to be hearing this. But like, if let's say someone called you, not mm-hmm. at home, at work or something, an office yeah. number, guys, let's be real, and just asked, you know, for a chance for you to look at their stuff. I mean, what are the chances that you'd be able to do that for someone else at some point? Because you're, you're a busy guy. It's not like, yeah. you know. that that That's a great question. And uh, th- that's a that's a tricky situation because everybody wants you to read their script, and it takes some time to read a script. I want people to realize that. That's the thing. It's it's first of all, if you're just re- if you're reading it and they are asking you uh, for feedback, that is a lot of work for the reader because you're not just reading; you have to think about it. You have to come up with suggestions. It's a, a lot of time. Um, so you have to be a little bit more selective about who you're going to do that for. So usually it's it's a friend or a friend of a friend. If it's someone who wants a job, I, I probably would not be that open to, to reading the script. It's usually you have to go through an agent the proper or a channels. manager, the proper channels. So Understandably you know, so, by the way. It depends on, you know... <laughs> on how you're feeling like I've I've had things like my brother's dentist's son had a script and you know I read it uh I did read it the problem becomes when that person wants you to read it again after you've given them notes or whatever so it, it when you open the door you have to be careful who you open the door to um and, and look your, what, so your brother's dentist's friend is that son. what you said brother's son yeah so I won't name any names but it's, it's uh, of course, I would want to help someone and guide them. And, you know, if you're, if you're a Brandeis grad or a Columbia grad, you know, especially. It's a little but, easier. But uh, it, 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 it just um, snowballs. And that way, Eric, this is much easier. This is just, you know, a little less than an hour of your time talking about your career. <laughs> Such a true. different ask than you that's sitting down true. and reading some random person's script. Exactly. Um, but we'll keep going. So you're so you so you get to LA, you have this agent now, you mm-hmm. have a spec script. Mm-hmm. Does do this does this agent start sending you out? How is he able to get you the right meetings? Yes, yes. So I had that that spec script and uh I think I went on a, a about a dozen meetings that 
he set up for me, people who read that script. And, you know, one of those persons became a good friend later on. Um, and one of the other things to know is I, I, I didn't get any work off of that spec. I'll just start with that. But some of those people went on to become, you know, big shot executives. So you never know uh, who you're meeting. You know, they, they could be a, a person just starting out like you, but those people are going to rise up. So any meeting is important, even if it doesn't lead to a job. You're making some sort of connection. So for, for me, I had that script when I came out here. And while I was hoping to, you know, find work, I sat home and I wrote another spec. And I was, I'll say lucky, you know, I, that's the one that was optioned. So it was really about six months after moving out to LA, I had my first script optioned, which, you know, was, was, was tremendous. I was, I was and thrilled. And what was like, the script? What made it so great? It was, well, it was a, a rom-com and uh, it was optioned by Universal and Imagine, uh, Ron Howard's company was the producer and I was, you know, thrilled and I really knew nothing about how the development process worked, how fast I should have worked in retrospect. Um, and, you know, as things usually go out here, um, I did a couple of revisions for them and then they lost interest in the project. However, that particular script was made as a very low budget independent movie about five, six years later, directed by Sean Levy, who has become a, a huge success out here. He did Night, of, Night at the Museum and many, many other movies. And that was one of Sean's earliest uh, films. So, you know, you're, you're starting out with people who are going to grow along with you in the industry. Well, so let's touch on that one point for a second. So what, what do you know now that that you didn't know then. So you said that the industry is very fast. How fast should you have given those revisions back? How fast oh, should you have handled this? I, I, I just know faster, faster. I, I, I think I was waiting for the, you know, the, the ink to dry on the contract instead of jumping on my, my notes. I didn't know how to take notes that well back then. I was a little more uh, protective of my original work than I am now where I'll just, you know, oh, we don't want that scene. It's gone. You know, I just cut it. Back then it was harder, harder for me to let go of how I originally conceived of a story and to do things differently. So I think I got stuck in, stuck in that. And I, I do remember one of the notes being more laughs, more tears. And I didn't know what to do with that. I don't know if I would today, but you, you have to learn to translate notes too as you become more experienced. So, uh, and again, the executive giving me that note uh, was new at her job and maybe couldn't express what she was looking for as well. And she has gone on to be a, a tremendous success here. So again, you know, you're all kind of learning together. <laughs> Um, and it's it's all useful for later on. You know, you're not going to be an expert as soon as you come out here. A hundred percent. Yeah, no, you have to learn and you have to probably learn quickly. So, you know, you did. So so then within the first year after this six month period, you have this script 
And then this is the one that's uh, that was uh, produced by Sean Levy, you said. Directed right? by Sean. Directed mm-hmm. by Sean Levy. And so now what? How do you then go, okay, I'm a writer? Well, you know what? I sat down and wrote more specs. And I'll be honest, part of the reason I did that was, one, I thought, well, I had some success doing that, so let me keep doing that. The other part is uh, I didn't like pitching. I didn't feel good about it. I didn't think I did it well. Um, It was very awkward for me. So rather than, and I didn't at that time really know how to figure out an entire story before I sat down to write. So to pitch something was very challenging. So instead of doing that, I sat home and I worked solo and hoped that I could sell those scripts. Unfortunately, there were two more occasions after that first um, option where that happened again. And the same thing happened. It was, I was optioned, the scripts were optioned, um, you know, by studios and they didn't make those projects, but they were both made later on as low budget movies. So that's how I worked. And, And the first time I was successful um, pitching a project was when they were going to make an animated story out of Anastasia. Oh, yeah. So please tell me about this, because this is my childhood, Eric. Uh, well, I mean, first of all, I've always wanted to write a musical. So the idea that I could write an animated musical, which were coming back in style at that time after Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast, um, was super exciting for me. And I knew that Fox was trying to compete with Disney on that front. And they were deciding what their first animated project would be. And I think I got a call saying they're going to turn, they have the rights to Anastasia, the movie with Ingrid Bergman, and they want to make it into a, uh, an animated musical, which sounded crazy to me because, of course, that story is about the horrific murder of the royal family, and there's potentially this princess. Like, how do you make that a family friendly? I mean, theoretically, I don't know if you're watching The Crown, but there's a of whole course. episode about I the Romanovs. I just saw it, and it is it's so disturbing. It's so disturbing, and I remember thinking, "How did they? How did you guys just figure I out that know. this could become a musical?" I know I mean, it was it was nuts, but um, I, I talked to um, my my manager at the time, Jonathan Baruch, who was working at a company with uh, a gentleman named Craig Saavedra. And they pumped me up um, about making this pitch. And I met with the executive who's uh, Kevin Bannerman at Fox. And I remember having uh, included in that pitch was a scene that actually made it all the way into the movie, which was the scene where she goes into the dilapidated palace and she imagines the paintings coming to life in her family and i think that really sparked kevin's interest and uh along with whatever else i said at the time and i was i was the first writer on that project that uh, they hired me to write an outline for that project and they were deciding between that and another animated story as their first film and they chose Anastasia. So I got to work on it, write a script for maybe, I was working on it for maybe a year and then they replaced me and 
you know, many other talented writers. Which that happens, right? It's crazy. And it's not personal. Do you, do you, do you feel like it was oh, personal? Oh, not personal. Not personal. But again, you know, now in, in hindsight, oh, I should have, should have done this or that. And I probably could have stayed on the project longer. But who knows at the time? Absolutely. I mean, and then how did it feel when like the people that became attached to it, like the voices, you know, you have Meg Ryan and John Cusack and Christopher Lloyd and Bernadette Peters. How did that feel to be like, wow, this oh. is it's a and big so deal. Once I was let go from that project, I had no idea what was happening with it. And I remember reading, I think it was in Variety, like everybody else that they had hired Meg Ryan, John Cusack, Angela Lansbury. And I was so so excited, of course, of course. And I thought this is this is real now. They're actually doing it and it's gonna be amazing. And uh I, I didn't know what was left of my work in the script and how much was left with it? Like once you saw you it, know, how much was left? That scene, a few other scenes, the general structure, a, a, a handful of dialogue, you know, honestly. And the two other writing teams really did the bulk of of the dialogue in the story. Yeah. But I think the scene, that scene is still in it. The, the scene where she's in the palace. And then yeah. Then, so no, for sure. Was, and then she sings a song. She's like, it's like a big staircase. If I remember correctly, yes. and like a huge painting. That's right. I remember. That's right. I remember. Yeah. Listen, my childhood, I'm not, I'm not just making that <laughs> up. That was really pivotal. That's great. So, so you, so this happened, right? And this, I think right afterwards, you just had a steady stream of just like TV episodes, TV films, TV miniseries. Like it seemed like you were consistently working. Did it feel that way at the time? No, or? because I wasn't. It really, it might read that way because the, you know, might, might say, you know, each year there was something, but within those time periods, there were some dry spells. And, you know, what happened was I had had this success having scripts optioned, feature films optioned, and none of them at that time were getting made. So I was making a living. I was able to support myself, but it wasn't really that satisfying. And this Jonathan told me, you know what? I have an opportunity for you in television. And again, I hadn't really considered it. I hadn't thought about making that move and he said, just try it because the showrunner of the show read your script and, you know, really is into it. And she wants to meet you. The show is Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. And I had not watched the show, but um, I watched it in preparation for this meeting. And I met with Beth Sullivan, who was the creator, who's a wonderful person. And she hired me. And after she hired me for that TV job, those other scripts that were features ended up getting made in those smaller ways that I told you about. But at the time, I, and I had already worked on Anastasia, so I, I joined this TV world, and it was eye-opening. I was so thrilled because I had been working on my own for so many years. Suddenly, I'm in this environment with other writers and all these creative people. There was great camaraderie. I was like going to training for being a TV writer uh, in, a, in a really supportive environment. And the best part was I wrote a script and guess what? They make it and people see it and your work is not in a vacuum anymore. You're actually producing work and it, it became so gratifying that I never really went back to try to 
be a feature writer. So, and I, 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 you know, other writers that I've had on the show, specifically TV writers, will say one of the benefits of TV writing is are the deadlines. Yes, that all of a sudden you're like, I have to put this out there. Exactly. So it doesn't matter if I feel creative, if I feel like I'm approaching a writer's block. Doesn't matter; those things don't exist. I have a deadline. I need this to be done. That's exactly I can't right. be that critical about it. Yep. Do you feel that way? Hundred percent. Yes, and you can't be that precious about your material anymore. Like I said, like. Either you're cutting something for schedule or because creatively it doesn't work. You just really have to keep that train running when you're on a TV series. You know, it's going to keep moving and you got to feed the train or it stops. So it's, it's really helpful. It's helpful to have those deadlines. It teaches you that sometimes um, the same thing is going to come out if you have three days to do it versus three months. You know, you're just, you, and, the, and the, the three days is like forcing you to, you know, tap into whatever kind of zone you need to get into fast because they need it and you make decisions quickly and uh, you just keep moving forward. Whereas, you know, if you're home writing a spec, you can, you know, goof around. Take and, some breaks, yeah. go for the walk. And believe me, I'm very skilled at that too. So that that hasn't changed, but. So what is your writer's process now when you sit down to write an episode or anything? What's your process in terms of sitting down and actually write it? Gosh, I wish I could tell you. I, I don't know what my process is. I, I, think it's, I think it's sort of procrastinating long enough until I absolutely have to do it. And then I do it. It's just like uh, I've, I've often thought to myself, I really want like to set up a video camera in my office because there does, there comes a point where suddenly you are just tapping on your keyboard and, and stuff is, is coming out. Like you're actually putting words on, on computer. And I don't know where that happens in the process. It just sort of just does. And I don't question it too much. I read Shonda Rhimes's book and I remember she said, you know, when she's in the, in her writing sort of sphere, whatever she said, Mile one, two, and three, and I think she just made that number up, but like mile three in this marathon, it's a struggle to Mm -hmm. sit down, to write, to get into some sort of zone. Mm -hmm. She's like, but once you hit mile three, it's smooth sailing. You know, mile like three through 10 feels like totally fine. So she's like, do not interrupt me when I'm on mile any of it because it's so hard to get through those first three or so miles and then once i'm there you cannot you like no everyone knows they can't knock on my door because i i would i'm gonna yell um so i i wonder if that's the same thing if it's just like until you get to that place where you're like you're in it you're on mile three yeah it just feels difficult still it does and uh, one thing i have to keep telling myself to this day is when I'm writing a first draft of something, I have to remind myself that it's a first draft and no one needs to see this. It could be terrible. It could be terrible. And you have to shut off that, that kind of self sense, the inner critic and just, just get something down, just get something down. Because my favorite part, a lot of writers will say that uh, about writing is having written, you know, not, not the actual, writing but i do love going back and fixing 
a first draft because then you when you get to the end of something then you look back and know what's hopefully know what's wrong and what's not working and what you need to adjust but just kind of like getting it all out in this and people call it as i don't know a vomit draft um i don't call it that but um just just get I feel this. like michelle my my first drafts are not that bad they're not vomit drafts. <laughs> spit i'm drafts. telling you spit drafts. they're spit drafts yeah. they're like all spit take yeah. it's just it's not i can never insult my first draft right. that much right and i have a yeah, phobia but I think that's that really vomit. reassuring oh oh fair yeah. so then it's definitely not that for yeah. you but um i think it's very reassuring for writers who are listening i know myself i'm God, for a long time now, I've been trying to sit down to write like a short film for me as an actor, like what I want to be in yeah. and write it for myself, etc. And I got to tell you, it's 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 like it's like trudging through mud sometimes, is, you know, like I think people wait for some sort of divine inspiration and it just that doesn't it's not reality. No. Like you, I'm sure you, there are many times you feel inspired. So it's not like that's not a thing. It is. But you can't wait for it. You just have to trudge through some mud. You I feel do, like you do You just have to take a leap of faith. You have to find that initial or keep reminding yourself about that initial thing that interested you about this idea, what got you charged up. And, you know, if if you're struggling and, and that initial spark isn't doing it for you anymore, there's something wrong with your idea for you. Otherwise, you just you just keep going, just keep going and then judge just it write at that the end. Spit draft. Yes. That's so good. I love it. So. So you're you're writing now. Okay, so at some point you get to a place where you're writing more or less consistently for television, for what, right? I mean, it's somewhat consistently. Yeah. As much as a writer in LA and Hollywood can can write consistently on different projects, but there are some dry spells. Can you just touch on briefly what kind of things do you do during those dry spells? How do you get through them? Uh I, I guess uh, hard hitting questions, Eric. Hard hitting <laughs> questions. Hard. Well, the, those are the those are really the, the difficult periods because what what's the worst part of those periods for me is when you're in a dry spell, you're under enormous pressure, of course, because you you know financially you have to be solvent and uh, you you might have family at that time. So at the same time, you're supposed to be very creative and like maybe reinvent yourself with some new writing sample, you have this additional stress on you. It's not like, oh, here, we're gonna pay you for six months and you go write whatever you want. It's like, you have no money coming in for six months. Now go write something that's gonna change your career or break you in again. So that, that's very difficult. And that's the thing I would say, you have to be willing to tolerate if you're gonna get into this business that it is a roller coaster and I don't care how successful you are. There might be a rarefied few who don't experience it. You are gonna have ups and downs and you have to be willing to just plow through those downs and know that um, you're gonna come out the other end. You know, there there is, I can't tell you how often where I've just reached the point where like, oh my God, it's all falling apart and some job appears or some, I don't know, assignments or something appears just at the right time at the last minute. And, you know, your, your job is just to hopefully make use of those dry spells and keep active and keep busy. And it's, it's miserable. It's, it's, uh, it's not fun. I, I can't sugarcoat it. 
I love that advice. I really do. I know it, it doesn't seem like much, but it, it really is impactful, at least for me, as I'm sure for a lot of people. Just the idea you power through, know that there's another side, know that during those dry spells to do work and just keep active and like hang in there. Well, the thing about, I'll just say, you know, I know you're an actor and you're also a writer, but the the lucky thing as a that's writer really, that's really nice of you Eric, oh, to call me a writer well, i wouldn't go that far okay. I'm, i've written very little but okay. i appreciate that i am a writer <laughs> i'll take it thank you i appreciate it <laughs> it's just that writers can still write when they're not employed they can be home writing and they could actually sell something perhaps at the end of that process much harder for an actor you know, what are you going to do? You can, of course, take classes, you can be in plays, you can do, but... You, you make podcasts, Sarah. Okay. <laughs> well, it's useful. It's useful, but... But it's, no, it's true. It's like, there's not much we could do aside from just like take classes and like make self-tapes and yeah. like put it on social media, which I don't love doing, but that is something people do. And, and the other They'll thing... Just like put together work. That, that's so smart. The other thing is... Uh, I have such respect for actors because as a writer, yes, you take things personally, but you can always say, well, they didn't like that script. But for an actor, it's hard it's not to say, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? You yeah. know, what don't they like about me? And you, and I'll just tell all the actors listening, there's, you know, most often nothing wrong with you. <laughs> there's absolutely nothing wrong. And you're just not, right for that particular role or uh, you know i'll be honest you know there's uh, the the producer hiring you has a a friend or a favorite or some their eye on someone else or the studio is pushing someone else you don't know what happens before you walk into an audition you don't know what the context is so you just go in and you just give it your best and let everything else go you know just look at it as an opportunity to to refine your craft as an auditioner and and then walk out and go on to the next thing don't say oh my god why you know it could also be just the way you the way you look you just don't yeah. look right for the part yeah. it has nothing to do with your skill or your talent or you look too similar to someone else on the show That's right. and like that happens right. you know it's part of it it is weird, though, because you're right. When you're a writer, you could at least go, they didn't like my project. And although that project is an extension of me, it's not me. That's right. But for an actor, it's like, I just put this together. Yes, that is me. That's you. <laughs> that is That's you. That's oh, my God. And it's such a vulnerable thing when you come into an audition. Uh, and and you know, even on Zoom, it's like, I, I, total respect. Total respect for you guys. Thank you, Eric. I appreciate that. Um, so let's, let's go on to Kyle XY. Uh, how'd you get involved with Kyle XY? Cause I also really like that show too, but how'd you get into Kyle well, XY? That, that's a good example of, you never know where a meeting is going to lead. And it, it's, um, this, that's a great, this is a good thing I think to talk about because I was, I, I had met, um, two staff on a new TV show, which was a remake of, uh, Oh my gosh, I'm going to blank on it now. The Night Stalker. I don't know if you remember that show. Okay. Uh, it was a show in the 70s, and then it was remade in the 2000s. And the the creator of that remake was a writer named Frank Spotnitz, who is at that time most known for working on the X-Files. And 
I got a meeting with Frank only because Beth Sullivan, who was my Dr. Quinn Medicine woman showrunner, knew Frank and recommended me. I don't think my agent could have gotten me that meeting Mm. because my credits didn't really lend themselves to that particular show. So I met with Frank. He's a terrific guy. We had a really great meeting. I didn't get the job. He didn't hire me. But, which was super unusual, he sent me a really lovely note after not hiring me. And I thought it was so classy. I'd never even, one and only time that's ever happened. So about maybe a year and a half later, this was during one of my dry spells where I was not working. I think I had one mini series that I had worked on. Uh, I got a call totally out of the blue from my agent at the time. And he said, Frank Spotnitz, Spotnitz has been asked to take over show running a new show that they're doing at ABC Family. And he has a deal with the studio. So he's gonna do it for a little bit, like a, a couple of months, but he doesn't wanna run it. And he thought he would bring you on and he'll help get it up on its feet and then hand over the show to you if you could convince the studio and talk to Frank about your take on this project, and then you'll have to meet with the studio and the network, of course. But I couldn't believe it. I mean, it totally came out of the blue. And I met with Frank and he he eventually told me, because I was afraid to even ask why he thought of me, he, he felt he didn't know the type of writer in his experience who would be good for this material, but having met me and read my material, he thought I would be suited to this show. So it was because he sponsored me and I came in, I guess, with a take that, that the studio liked that I got hired to do that. So it was just a result of having a successful meeting that wasn't successful in getting me a job then, but it led to something a year and a half later. So that's how I got that involved with Kyle. Story. Yeah. And then you be asked, yeah, and then you were the showrunner for a while. I, I mean, was, that's I was. Huge. And it was it was wonderful. It was uh again, trial by fire. I had never done that before. I had um a staff of young writers. I had a, a terrific writer producer named Julie Pleck who worked on that show. And Julie is now like one of the most successful writer producers out here. So I, I couldn't have done it without her. And I had, I think, some young executives on the studio side um, and network side, and we were all kind of learning how to make TV together. That's how I felt, a a new TV show together. And it turned out to be very successful. It was their biggest show at the time. So that was was great. That was really great. Huge. Do you feel like you jumped because for for people who aren't listening, there there is normally this like hierarchy in mm. the writers' room. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the hierarchy? Yes. What it usually looks like, and how did it feel to kind of just go right up to showrunner? Yeah. Uh, well, it's funny because yes, there's a hierarchy, and there's sort of a ladder of, of of titles and responsibilities as you're more experienced on a writing staff. You start as a staff writer, and then eventually you're going to work your way up to producer. So it, you know, it's staff writer, story editor, executive story editor, co-producer, producer, supervising producer, co-executive producer, executive producer. That's the, that's the thing. Amazing, such a that was in one breath, yeah. guys. That was in one breath. So on Dr. Quinn, I started as a story editor instead of a staff writer 
because I'd had some experience in the feature world. So instead of starting me at the bottom, they started me one rung up. Now, I, I was very happy. Now, Beth, being the generous person that she is, bumped me from story editor, executive story editor, straight to supervising producer. So at the time, because I was very inexperienced in TV, I thought that was amazing and I was thrilled. In retrospect, and I, I can't change anything that's happened because that's my story, I probably got bumped up too quickly because I simply was mm. not experienced enough to be at that level. And I think that probably hurt me after that show because I was, I was just not ready. Um, now, I had other TV jobs before Kyle came along, but yeah, I had not r run a show. So it was another situation where I was thrown into the fire. The deep end, yeah. And I kind of figured it out. And, you know, there's a lot of that in this business. You have to kind of say to yourself, yes. look, they're giving me this opportunity. They must think I can do it. <laughs> so so I'm going to do my best to do my best. And that's that's what I did. And I'm, I'm sure I made plenty of mistakes, but um, that's how it goes. That's normal. Yeah. So then, you know, we go to Beauty and the Beast, which is great. And I, I would normally, I would talk about it, but we, we don't have much time. Yeah. But then we went into Stitchers, which I have yes. to kind of share with people. So you started off, I think, as a consulting producer, yes. then an executive producer in Stitchers. Yeah. And and for those who don't know this show, this is an ABC family show. And it was about this young, I'm going to call her a model because she definitely <laughs> had that vibe to her. So this young model who like, essentially, it's like hired by a government agency to stitch her her brain into those who have been recently deceased yes. and then she'll be able to see what their memories were it's a pretty cool sci-fi yes, concept yes. mind you but tell me how did you get involved in that one what was it like working on that sure show? sure well you know uh, she was a brilliant um scientist not a model she was, uh, I, she was a student she, but, she, but she looked like well, such a model to me but yes, yes she was a brilliant scientist she's very talented yes. as well emma ishta but... was was both yes, brilliant emma and beautiful um, exactly I, I got involved with that because well first of all i'd been on a number of sci-fi shows by that point not really by design because i enjoyed sci-fi but that's simply where i started getting hired i wasn't like someone who grew up as a I, I like Star Trek and Star Wars, of course, but I wasn't like, I knew every... You're not a Trekkie? Not, I can't call myself a Trekkie. I just don't know every detail. But that's, I suddenly got classified as a sci-fi writer. And the, this is how everything kind of melds together. The creator of Stitchers, Jeff Schechter, was also a client of my manager's, Jonathan, who was oh. a producer of Stitchers. So wow. when there was an opening on that show. I, I joined the staff and um, that's how that happened. They, they had an opening and I was a consultant. And then the next season I, I jumped up to be an uh, EP alongside uh, Jeff, who was the showrunner. I love it. Yeah. 
I, I feel like this is a story for you. Like this happens quite, and, and maybe that's that's sort of a consistent thing, not just with you, with other writers. But, you know, I was thinking, I've heard the story, I think that How You Got Handmaid's Tale, mm-hmm. right? We're jumping a little bit. But the showrunner, Bruce Miller, you had worked with on Alphas and Eureka, right. sent you an email, right. correct, about yeah. Handmaid's Tale. So, so this feels like this is somewhat of a thing. It's just like the creator kind of hears about you or knows you yeah. or like has met you and is like, you know what? You'd be perfect for this. Well, you know, this is the thing. Uh, you always hear, oh, people hire their friends or people hire the people they've worked with. And you know what? It's true. That That's the first go-to because you're, it, you're under so much pressure when you're running a TV show. You want people that you know you could depend on and who will deliver. So, of course, you're going to go to people that you've worked with first. I mean, it's only natural. Not that you don't want to give other people opportunities, but I think your first hires are going to be your core hires, your core people where you're going to feel that support. So, with Bruce, I was working on Stitchers and I get this email out of the blue from Bruce. And the subject line was you may have heard this somewhere else. Subject line from Bruce was, you know, S H H H H H, because I, I had not spoken to him. I had no idea he was working on this project. Uh, I didn't even know they were developing The Handmaid's Tale as a series. Had you even had you even read the book? Was no. it like one of those things you read in like high school? No, I knew of the book, of course, but I'd never read it. I remember my mom reading it in the eighties, um, but uh, he had written the pilot and he sent me the script, and I was blown away. I just thought it was incredible. I remember thinking, man, if they do this right, this is going to be a really great show. And I said to Bruce, I would, I would love, I would love to be on this show. But the problem was, you know, I had credits that didn't really seem to the people on the other side hiring in their mind. I'm sure I didn't have those prestige kind of credits, those sexy TV credits that they look for. So it was really to Bruce's credit that he presented MGM and Hulu with the writers that he wanted. And several of them, including me, came from uh, Eureka or Alphas or The Hundred that Bruce also worked on. Yes. And to their credit, MGM and Hulu took the leap of faith in their mind and let him hire who he wanted. And it turned out okay. It turned out okay. It turned out, I'm going to say, let's say, well, so that'll go in right into my next question. It turned out really, I mean, okay, not just in the caliber of the show that you guys created, but I mean, you've been nominated and won an Emmy in 2017, Mm -hmm. right? For outstanding, um, what's it? Outstanding drama series. Right. Uh, so congratulations on all of that <laughs> and all you. that tremendous. Has that changed anything for you as a writer? I mean, sometimes people say, you know, those type of awards don't mean very much or don't doesn't they don't really change anything. How has it been for you to now be an Emmy winning <laughs> producer, writer of television? You know what? It's it's, of course, great validation. And, you know, it feels wonderful. The other part of it, uh, as Bruce himself says, now when he's writing, he's got you know, I think Bruce has two Emmys and uh, many, many other awards. He, you know, that's sitting right in the middle of his keyboard now. And it puts it puts a lot of pressure, even more pressure, because you want to live up to those standards. And, you know, in some ways it's a good thing because it keeps you on your toes, but it, it, it also, um, the expectations are higher. 
So it, it makes yeah. it a little even more scary, I think, when you're facing a blank page. Am I going to live up to that for my own standards? You know, can I repeat what I've, I've been doing? Uh, but it's, it's great. It's, it's wonderful. There's no downside. There is no downside. Yeah. You're like, Michelle, don't get me wrong. Yeah. I, I'm, I like being here. Yes, yes. <laughs> but I do understand that it also comes with this added pressure. Yeah. I wanted to kind of get a little insight into what you feel like your writing style is. And what I mean by that is, like you said, you kind of found yourself with all these like sci-fi shows for quite some time. Mm -hmm. And then you have, you know, Handmaid's Tale, which is on its another echelon of just brilliance in terms of writing. What that was me. I said that. Oh. You don't have to take that. But but it's true. But anyway, the point is, is um where where do you feel like your style lies? Do you feel like you have a particular style or a particular genre that you connect with fully or something that you enjoy writing more than others? Obviously, everything I feel like has been very smart writing. Hmm. Like I Thank think you. that there's a very there's an intelligence to all of it, but what is there a particular thing you would say in looking at your career and looking at the stuff you've written on that you feel like is something that that attracts you to certain type of stories and projects? Right, right. You know, style wise, I think it's kind of always evolving. Uh, although I think at this point, simple and clear is where I uh, what I strive for now, and, and not to overwrite too much. Um, but I think. I'm I'm drawn to things that are emotional. You know, just just uh, it, it could be in a, a very high stakes context like um, The Handmaid's Tale, or it could be in a romantic comedy. It doesn't matter. And you know, even even on The Handmaid's Tale, uh, I was going to say you know something with humor and heart. Even on The Handmaid's Tale, I, I've tried to invest some humor in the story. Thank you so much. This has been absolutely brilliant. Oh. I feel like I've learned so much about your process, about the system, and just like your journey. It's really, it's so, so good. It's so informative. I really appreciate oh, it. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Mentors on the Mic. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend in entertainment you know would love it. Let me know what you've learned or what stayed with you on our Instagram at mentors on the mic. I love reading your messages. Uh, you can also find me at, at Michelle Simone Miller on Instagram. On both accounts, I'll be sharing even more information about our mentors. Talk to someone about what you learned today who would really appreciate it and send them the episode. Also, if you love the show, please go ahead and leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It really makes a huge difference in growing this. It makes it easier for people to find our podcast, and I love reading your reviews. So thank you so much, and I'll see you next week.